Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Tom Varghese. We have been extraordinarily blessed these past few years with opportunities to engage with a diverse group of leaders on same surgeon, different light. So how do we conclude season three? By bringing to you an interview with an international giant in our field. In a medical first on January 7th, 2022, Dr. Bartley Griffith and his team at the University of Maryland Medical Center transplanted a genetically modified pig heart into a patient who was ineligible for a human heart transplant and had no other options. The surgery marked a critical step forward in the decades-long quest to one day use xenotransplants as part of the armamentarium for transplant surgery. The brave 57-year-old patient, Mr. David Bennett, survived two months with a new heart, two months longer than anyone could have ever imagined. Unimaginable, never before done. But how does a lifelong quest to do the impossible start? In today's episode, we explore Dr. Griffith's unique journey, a Pittsburgh native who ascended to highest echelons of academia. Here are some highlights from an extraordinary career. After joining the surgical faculty at Pitt in 1981, he rose to full professor with tenure in 1988, seven years later. He was the Henry T. Banson Professorship of Surgery, Chief of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery in 1980, became Vice Chair in the Department of Surgery, and is a founding director for the internationally recognized McGowan Center for Artificial Organ Development. He was then recruited to the University of Maryland in 2002, where he helped transform the academic center into a leading light in the world of cardiothoracic surgical transplantation and currently serves as the Director of Cardiac and Lung Transplant Programs there. In 2018, he joined Dr. Mohamed Mohidin's Xeno Heart Lab, and their foundational work laid the path to the first successful xenotransplant into a human in January 2022. The track record of Dr. Griffith is exemplary. 
He has been continuously funded as a principal investigator from the NIH since 1990, has published more than 792 peer-reviewed papers and 84 book chapters, and was a former program director of the cardiothoracic training programs, both at the University of Pittsburgh and University of Maryland. His life of innovation has known many firsts, performing the first double lung transplant for cystic fibrosis in November of 1983, developing the use of aerosol cycle sporin to reduce obliterative bronchiolitis after lung transplantation, receiving the first FDA permission to discharge patients on implanted beds from the hospital in 1980, leading the development of an artificial lung that is currently in clinical trials and the groundwork for xenotransplantation. Even more remarkable, Despite all of the legendary accomplishments, the groundbreaking scientific breakthroughs, raising the bar to the stratosphere, you will find that Dr. Griffith is one of the most approachable down-to-earth individuals you will ever meet. Join us for one of the most insightful, thoughtful conversations we have ever had. Dr. Bartley Griffith on today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Dr. Griffith, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, it's high praise. <laughs> Probably not high enough, but we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as you know, the, this uh, podcast series really deep dives into the origin stories of our amazing CT surgeons in, in our world. And so let's get started. Um, you're a, a native of uh, Pittsburgh, is that correct, Dr. Griffin? That's right. Pittsburgh, I'm all educated in Pennsylvania. I went to uh, uh, Bucknell University and uh, thereafter uh, to University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for my general surgery and cardiac surgery and stayed there for my first half of the career. Now, it's interesting you mentioned about Bucknell, the bison, is that correct, uh, Dr. You betcha. <laughs> and, and you are not a, a, a just a typical alumnus of that uh, university because you were heavily involved in the development of their biomedical engineering program and were was briefly on the board of trustees there as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, Bucknell is a great liberal arts college, but uh, and and it and it really is small enough that individuals can, you know, can do their thing, so to speak. Um, I got started kind of past the regular schedules of the pre-med stuff to really enjoy college because we had these projects that we could do. And I think it's germane to our discussion today because how do you get interested in something as crazy as what I've spent much of my life doing? Well, if you remember, um, the first human heart transplant occurred in 1967, very late 1968, really. In January, there was an influx. And then through all of 1968, there was over 120 cases done. And even though um, a lot of those cases didn't work out real well, they were in the news. And I was just really, um, you know, coming through that that college period. And, and so I decided that I'd learn how to do um, heart transplants while I was in college. Yeah. So I, I went to my professor. She was nuttier than I was. And she introduced me to this <laughs> really crazy um, psychology professor who'd probably been there a couple centuries too long. But but he introduced me uh, to his discard breeding rats. And, and these were really big rats. You know, they look like, uh, you know, hamsters or, you know, something much bigger than you might expect. But they were finished terrorizing them in the in the psychology experiments, you know, Skinner boxes and all that stuff. As it turned out, they were my subjects that I was to do heart transplants. And of course, uh, there weren't a lot of OR nurses available to me at midnight, you know, in the in the back reaches of the uh, Crest Hall up at uh, at Bucknell. So 
you know, I learned how to stake them out on a pin board and then uh, to give them chloral hydrate, which is knockout drops. Basically, you could, you could, you know, put that in aqueous solution and then inject the abdomen intraperitoneal. So I learned all about intraperitoneal um, anesthesia at an early stage. And so it did these, you know, heterotopic uh, heart transplants between them. I found out I couldn't stitch it very well. So I, I went off to try to figure out how to blow glass to make connectors so I wouldn't have to stitch. And, <laughs> you know, one, one disaster led to another, but the one I remember most was this really big rat. You know, and I just kept looking up at, you know, how, how long those incisors are and some of those animals and the whiskers were, you know, maybe six inches long. Um, so these guys and gals had been around for a while and, and, uh, I went over to get some more medicine uh, for to, to spray on the intestines to keep it asleep. And I, I made that move a little bit too late. The animal got loose and started to run around the lab. With the open belly. <laughs> oh yeah. And so I chased him, I chased him all over the place and finally he disappeared. And uh, you, you know, it wasn't an airtight building for sure. So we never did find that animal and I'm, I'm still searching for it. So who knows? Um, this is I, I hope that heart's still beating anyhow, but you know, so that was my first uh, not so successful attempt at being a heart transplant surgeon. That's an amazing story. And, yeah. and you were, it's, it's, it's phenomenal reading about uh, some of your uh, past life. I mean, it wasn't just you were a college student. I mean, you were a lacrosse player. You were on the ski team. I mean, you were doing a lot of different things in addition to doing these um, experiments on, on these rats. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I did get to play lacrosse. Uh, the ski thing was just, uh, I think that was a ski club. But uh, <laughs> but anyhow. But, but uh, you, were, you were on the lacrosse team, though. Yeah, um, I, I was. Yeah, I played, I played for four years. Uh, and, and the team was highly ranked for a couple of them. So I was really lucky to make good good friends and and uh you know i wasn't a very good lacrosse player but but you know as we do things in our professional life uh universities like to claim some success in that you know even though it's all <laughs> rather random we know that so they called me back and they, they gave me this award that was that was a a lacrosse uh player of the year award or something alumni uh you know a player and so they give this rolex award uh to a lacrosse player who in their after lacrosse playing time, you know, has a significant uh, profession. And so I had to go to Baltimore to get the final award and the timepiece. And I, I don't remember much about that night. I was scared to death. I remember flying into Baltimore and, and uh, here I am just two blocks from where I did this now. But uh, at the time it was big doings for me. I was out of, I, I guess I was a resident actually at, at, in Pittsburgh. And so I had to go up, they, they offered me a, uh, uh, you know, a, a few minutes to say a few awards. And, and this was after all the All-Americans had gotten their awards, you know, these super great athletes, you know. And so, you know, while I played the cross, I mean, if I hadn't, it wouldn't have mattered to anybody, you know, except to me. So so I was not the first guy that got to play. Uh, I wasn't the last guy that got to play, but, you know, I was okay. Um, so here I am, all these great lacrosse players, and all I remember saying to that crowd, and it broke them up, I said, I'm really glad that I'm a lot better heart surgeon than I ever was a lacrosse <laughs> player. ever was as a lacrosse player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the end of that story is not much better. You think about losing things. This was a $12,000, uh, uh, you know, gold watch. Uh, and for some reason, I had it on one day, went to the OR to do a long case, put it in my white coat. And when I came back, gone. You know? oh, so it was inscribed. I had my son played uh, lacrosse at, at Cornell and I was going to give him that, you know, that timepiece. So, 
you know, easy come, easy go, right? <laughs> that's a, that's a heartbreaking story. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Well, um, so you, it was very easy uh, early on that uh, interested in heart transplants, obviously trying to figure things out from college. And that subsequently led you to uh, the world of medicine. Were there other members of, uh, were there other physicians in your family or this was kind of just like pioneering on your own? In terms yeah, of my grandfather um, was a um, general surgeon uh, who worked in Pittsburgh and actually was the chairman of surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. And that was a long time ago. Wow. Chairmanship meant something a little bit different than what you and I think about it now. Uh, he worked at the Mercy Hospital, but he was in charge of the of the School of Medicine's, you know, apartment, if, if you can call it that, um, at the time. Uh, he was a general surgeon, did everything. I have a wonderful movie of him doing a thyroidectomy. It's really cool. They didn't use the bovi. And, um, you know, doing a thyroid without using the bovi at all is, that's, that's, that's a lot it's of a lot clamps. of blood vessels. Yeah, it's a cool. lot of clamps. And, you know, it just looked like he had a beard of, uh, of hemostats. You know, it was really quite something uh, to watch that. But, he was a venerable fellow, unfortunately had a, an early death from prostate cancer, uh, and I never got to know him, but uh, he was so revered in the town. Uh, I do remember distinctly as a young man uh, going out for dinner with, with his widow, my grandma, and we'd all, always go to her little town club for dinner, and lots of people would stop by the table to speak to her. And then, and then and inevitably, somebody would say something nice about her husband. You know, what a gentleman Dr. Uh, Griffith was. Um, well, that, that ended there, but um, anyway. <laughs> but, you know, it just seemed like here's a man who's just so revered and, and he was helping people and I was naturally inclined to help people in their struggle, whether it was getting across the street or whatever, just same, seemed to come naturally to me. Um, so I just kind of pivoted and, and that seemed to be, you know, the thing I wanted to do. So now we're in medical school and uh, obviously you, you're still driven to do heart surgery or, you know, heart transplants and that extended then to your surgical residency as well. Did you ever have any equivocation or any second thoughts about, you know, what the career is going to be or, or was it cardiac surgery uh, right from the start? Well, I, I didn't know whether I'd be cut out for it. I, I hooked up with a guy named John Y. Templeton Jr. And uh, that's a big name in Philly because because he, um, he was the assistant to, to the inventor of the artificial lung, heart lung machine, you know. And so he took over, over that whole position that, that had started at Jefferson, you know, with the advent of the heart lung machine. And uh, so he, he was quite a venerable heart surgeon, but a tough guy. Uh, he would, he'd be tough on the residents, but he always had a medical student kind of under tow. And there was a young lady in front of me who would, was kind of like, his shining star and she'd go everywhere. He operated at a couple different hospitals. In fact, it would take her with him. I thought that was really cool. So I worked hard and he finally adopted me as her surrogate. And I got to go to Cooper Hospital, took the train in the morning over to Cooper from, from Philly. And I would be quite, I'd be quite, you know, part of John Templeton's operating team. And I'm not even sure he knew my name to tell you the truth. <laughs> But, but we would do stuff. I mean, we were allowed to do stuff. The residents would look down and they say right, wrong, or left or right. But that, you know, nobody showed me how to take a vein out. And you can imagine a medical student shagging a vein back then. Um, but that was my job. And so I, I still remember I almost quit because I broke a needle trying to close the wound. It was one of the fairly big, big needle. 
and I couldn't find it. And I was so scared. I, I was so scared. I didn't tell him. Um, I told him later, about uh, 15 <laughs> years later, uh, when I saw him in a meeting. Uh, but as far as I could tell, that never caused a problem with that patient. But, you know, I was so scared. And then I was so guilty that I didn't say anything about it. I said, this, this work is too hard for me. I, I can't do this. Obviously, you overcame those initial struggles, but uh, yeah, yep. went through. Um, and then you were saying that you were at Pittsburgh for a very long period of time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. training yeah. and then on faculty there as well. I love Pittsburgh. I still have a lot of Pittsburgh in me. Um, some of my very, very best friends and colleagues are still there. A lot of my family is there now, and so you know, we still, we still, you know, bleed black and gold, uh, and we're exsanguinating recently, but. Uh, we'll get back. Um, but yeah, Pitt was great for me. It started out, you know, as a pretty sleepy place. John uh, Henry Bonson, who was a surgeon's surgeon, he had gone from, from Hopkins. He didn't get the job at Hopkins that he deserved, which was chief of, chief of surgery, um, because he really was their best cardiac surgeon. And, and that included people, people, you know, as celebrated as, uh, as um, let's see, Cooley was with him. Um, 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 Spencer and then uh, the Dukes guys, you know. Um, so, so there was a quite a cadre of really good guys. But anyhow, so he didn't get that job. Came to Pittsburgh, decided to try to make it something. And then his friend John, uh, his friend uh, uh, Starzl came over. Yep. Uh, and he gave Starzl kind of a job after Starzl had lost two. He'd been in Denver, then he'd been in LA, lost both those jobs. And he he fell out of the pyramid. He started at Hopkins, but he didn't make it through the residency. Believe it or not, Tom Starzl. And uh, anyhow, so Hopkins, uh, Bonson was really about the only guy that Starza would listen to. And so it was a great marriage because Hank would say, you know, if you think you can do something, go ahead and do it. So he gave a lot of leash, even to us as residents. Uh, but he gave Starzl enough leash that he built a world-class transplant program, you know, and, and really established utilitarian um, liver transplantation, cyclosporin, tacrolimus, I mean, quite remarkable. And in fact, he did two xenotransplants while I was there. Baboon and, to human liver. And, I, and for you, um, even though the focus was heart transplants and heart surgery, right? Starzl was quite a, a big influence on the oh. way you think about research and the way you did things, correct? Yeah, he was he was that way, but I had a lot of mentors. Uh, Peter Saffer was there. He's the he's the intensivist who had been at Hopkins as well who started CPR and really established the first intensive care units in this country. Um, and there was Mark Ravage, uh, you know, not only, a, you know, a pediatric surgeon, but somebody who, who dabbled in, in all kinds of uh, philosophy and medical readings. And these were really icons. And, and so to be in that cluster of, of people was just remarkable. And I don't think any one of those people, I would say, was my primary mentor. In the end, it was Starzl, I guess. But but rising up, you, you just could drink at the fountain of, of a wealth of experience. Uh, I don't think that there are many residents to, to actually, uh, residencies would, would provide similar kind of uh, experience. So I was delighted to stay on. And then, and then the transplant thing took off. I did more heart transplants in 1979-80 than I did any other operation. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you probably at that point thought that you'd be at Pittsburgh for the rest of your career. That, That's you know, right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you had, it seemed like it was a perfect marriage of 
phenomenal clinical practice, cutting edge research, you were training at the leading lights. How did the opportunity at Maryland come about? And well, what was the thought process as you embarked on that? Well, for me, it was an escape hatch. And, and what happened was uh, I was, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. You, you know, things had been going pretty well. Um, I decided that I would attempt to do something a little bit different than what the average surgeon was doing in the center. And I, and I basically got this idea that, because I was working with artificial pumps and you know, artificial heart stuff. And I thought maybe we could develop a center dedicated to artificial organ development. You know? and, and so I raised $14 million um, wow. for a center like that, but it took a lot of time. And I was out of the OR for a lot of that. My emphasis wasn't to do the next cabbage never has been. Um, but then the institution brought somebody in that was, quote, my partner. And, and that person began to do a whole lot of cases, drove a lot of business into the hospital. And before I knew it, you know, he was far more important than me uh, in the eyes of the people that had the key decision, not the dean, but, you know, the, the yeah. people in Pittsburgh that were counting the, the pennies. So the moral of that story for your listeners is it appears money wins. You, you know, uh, your hospital partnership can be influenced by your creativity and perhaps your research, but um, mostly they float not on that reputation, but they really do float on on making the uh, uh, ORs uh, run, you know, with multiple cases in a day. So I learned that lesson. You learned that lesson. And so the opportunity in Maryland came about and uh, you've obviously- yeah, yeah, it was a struggling place. It had low volume of work, uh, didn't have a heart transplant program, nor lung, didn't have a research lab. And so I was lucky to recruit guys like Jim Gammy, um, um, Rob Poston early on, and then uh, Brad Taylor. People, people kind of came and, and they worked like crazy. And the, in the, and the medical center kind of grew. Um, I think I hit it at the right time. Uh, we certainly added good ingredients. But the next thing I knew, we had a huge brand new, uh, you know, ICU and our, our OR cases grew to 1400. We had probably the second or third best funded NIH research lab, you know, both heart and lung transplantation began to flourish. And, you know, it was like Pittsburgh redo for me, you know, it was great. I had, I had a period of great satisfaction by just seeing that come together. Well, I, I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about uh, xenotransplantation and your and your research success. I mean, obviously, when the news came about and uh, uh, the amazing news of what you were able to offer Mr. David Bennett uh, uh, and um, for the fact that he lived 60 days after after this, you know, landmark surgery. But all of that was a reflection of decades worth of research and innovations that led to that moment of offering that. Um, walk us through that process. Like, where was the idea first generated? And talk about like the perseverance or grit going through all these yeah. successes and setbacks to get to that point of being able to uh, to transplant a, a pig heart into Mr. Mr. Bennett. Well, to answer the last first, you know, uh, Churchill said success is defined by by um, being able to maintain enthusiasm after a series of, of failures. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and we all know that as surgeons, right? And whether it's in the operating room or it's, you know, you have an idea, you pursue it, doesn't work out in the lab. Um, xenotransplantation was plugged into me pretty early. In fact, because of all these kind invitations to, to speak, I've been able to go back through my, my memory a little bit. And I pulled out a video 
a clip from Good Morning America, believe it or not. Wow. At the 20th anniversary of Bernard's transplant. So that would have been in uh, 68, 78, uh, 88, right? So right. I'm sitting there with Joan London and uh, Rob Jarvik on one side and Bernard on the other side. I'm the middle guy, kind of in the middle of the tennis match between those two. But but it was interesting because the conversation pivoted uh, to the to the problem not enough donors. And that was a pivot right. for Jarvik and the artificial heart, you know. But Bernard took it to xenotransplantation, which was really fascinating. And uh, and I don't know how important those conversations are in terms of, you know, planting seeds, but it was quite clear that this man who had done so much, and I'm while I, I know he benefited by tripping over here and watching some of the uh, the progressive surgeons early, you know, he was very creative and, and he had the courage to do something first. And for that, I think I'm forever grateful to him. You know, Shumway and, and uh, Lauer were both kind of waiting out the brain death thing. That was not defined. And, and it was really scary to them to consider um, just taking a beating heart out of the chest. And they weren't ready to take a heart that had stopped beating out of the chest. So that didn't seem to bother Bernard, who did have a standoff period at, for his first transplant, where he stood back for five minutes of um, isoelectric EKG before they made an incision to take their donor heart out. Uh, so a lot of you know a lot of that's pretty neat. So I held him in great reference, uh, reverence, and uh, it's a really interesting interview because he goes on for about five minutes about well, it'd be great to have enough donor hearts, but we need immune suppression to yeah. be sufficiently whatever so that we can use animal hearts. Amazing, right? Amazing. And then so that obviously led to the fact, uh, taking aside, it's interesting you mentioned Shumway because there is that famous quote. I think you've been asked about this. There's a famous old quote that Shumway said something along the lines that xenotransplantation will always be the future. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit of a derogatory dig at, at, at that particular field. Um, and you've heard that quote before, correct? Yeah, well, Tom, it's interesting. That quote's a little twisted. It actually came from, from Roy Calm. So Roy Calm, uh, the, the great immunologist, kidney transplanter in London, and he said exactly what you just said was, it's just around the corner and always will be. What, what Shumway actually said was, it's just around the corner and it's a very long corner. <laughs> So you know, the, the point was the same, but yeah, that's that's the way to be. Uh, you know, these were two great icons, and you know they're pretty right. I mean, I'm not sure we established, you know, that it's right here now, but we did break a glass ceiling in that case, yeah. right? Uh, walk us through the process about that because um, I think you've I've heard uh, you uh, there was an interview recently where you tried to differentiate between and correct me if I'm wrong. The, the difference between courage and daring and the way you had said it was your team, you yourself and your team was very daring, but the patient is the one that was very courageous. Uh, talk oh, to us yeah. about that. Yeah, that we comment. talk about being brave. I mean, you know, I knew at the end of the day I was going home, right? I mean, yeah. it, I, mean um, I guess um, if things had been different and I felt kind of more vulnerable in my position, you know, relative to professional societies, et cetera, et cetera, hadn't done the preparation. I think that was the big thing, Thomas. We, we felt, um, we felt that we were in a, in an area of equipose in the lab that we were going to be told, we had been told by the FDA that the likely multi-center trials would have to follow 
additional animal work. And that would mean baboon survivals for an average of six months, six out of eight or something like that. And we knew we could get those done, but those had to be done under what they called GLP, uh, good laboratory practice conditions. You had to do everything the same with each animal, which meant we couldn't iterate anything more, right? We had nine month survivals now, um, and they were becoming reliably good at like six months. So we were kind of, I wouldn't say angry, but we were frustrated by the fact that we're going to have to go, you know, out to 2025 before we actually can do something and maybe help somebody. So then it became clear to me um, with some, some education that you could maybe apply for an expanded IND. Uh, expanded is like the new compassionate use. And believe it or not, the, the, do you know what the... Um, the FDA qualifies the hard ass in terms of a, you know, is it a device? What is it? You know, no, I don't. It's, it's a, a drug. <laughs> it's a drug. It's a drug. And a drug. It, it has to go through the, it's the same a, Okay. <laughs> yeah. The regulatory pathway is for a biologic, you know, which is a, a medicine, which is hilarious, right? I mean, you know, because I come out of the device world, I kind of understand how to get a VAD through, you know, sure. what the processes are and what those trials look like. Boy, these drugs guys, they're really, ooh, you know, you got to really be sure. And they're used to doing thousands of patients, you know. Right. One, the, the other thing I'll ask you is how much does it cost to do one gene-edited pig to baboon transplant in the lab? How much would you guess if you were going to write your, you know, you were you were filling uh, out? Yeah, I mean, this is a budget. pure, yeah, pure guess on my part. It's something a million dollars, one point five. You're real close. Yeah, it's a little less than that. I think it's three quarters, half to three quarters. Wow. But it, you know, you can't do a lot. Right? You can't do a lot. If, yeah. If somebody gives you a good idea, you could say, "Great, now give me, you know, ten million dollars." We'll. And is and is most of the cost? It's not just the supply. It's probably all the safety mechanisms around that. Is that correct? Well, the animal is worth a lot, costs a lot to breed those animals now because they're cloned. They're not bred. Yeah. Uh, so each animal starts, you know, as a as an egg, you know, without a polar body and into which then you add um, you add, you know, bits of fibrocytes that have added uh, added things. And you add them into that egg and then you get a cloned dolly like thing. But um, but you can't, you know, it'd be great if you had breeding of those animals, so you had herds and herds like that, but they're still in a onesie twosie thing. So it's expensive to raise those animals. Um, so it's that, and then it's just baboons, you know, and you have to wait for a baboon to be about five or six years old to be 30 kilograms, 20 and 30 kilograms to be big enough to work with. Um, and then it's the, the care and treatment of those wonderful animals, right? And uh, it just, and then you need a whole team, right? That knows how to take care of primates. So Anyhow, it's not easy. And I think that's kept the field from really moving quicker because, you know, it's not unreasonable to expect the research to be done in non-human primates, and, and, but it's, it's going to take a while. But, but you would probably say that this event with, with Mr. Bennett has probably, um, you know, it, it, as you correctly pointed out, it shattered that ceiling and it's at least brought everybody to the reality that this can happen because there yeah. was a lot of doubt before this particular oh, yeah. case correct oh yeah and and i might have been amongst them you know i mean i just what we weren't sure what was going to happen i told mr bennett we, we may get you out two years we may get you out two minutes 
you, you know, if we guessed wrong on these edits, you know, and we haven't accounted for a human, a human uh, carbohydrate that's going to cause your innate immunity to go nuts and cause thrombosis of your heart, if we we haven't got that right, um, you're going to have trouble getting out of the operating room. Yeah. Um, he understood that. And, uh, and he was so courageous in this and he, he wheeled into the, you know, and we had been working on, on this experimental transplant consent and permission for almost two and a half weeks. He was desperately ill, but, you know, we were sure we had four psychiatrists see him to make sure he could consent. You know, he wasn't too sick for that. We had uh, our ethics group see him, took all that time to get it right. And, and finally he agreed, his family agreed going into the OR that morning, right? We're, taking the heart out of the pig up in the lab, he looks at me and he says, are you sure I can't have a human heart? <laughs> <laughs> but he did, he did then let me off the hook. He, he said, well, he said, I understand. And um, he said, if I don't make it, uh, perhaps you'll learn something. And so part of my mission is to be sure that, uh, that, that that agreement is held true and that we we do all we can to learn and we're still we're still you know kind of digging through his tissue um yeah we've, we've and, learned an enormous amount yeah and uh, when do you think the next one is going to happen i mean you're, you're oh boy thinking. that's a great question um there is no guarantee there will be one before a multi-center trial in 2024 um i've been told that multi-center trial looks like single center at first and it looks like patients will be staggered by six months so you know, this idea that all the major medical centers are going to be like in, in many of our trials going to be participating is probably not likely. Yeah, because the FDA has got a governor on it, not because the company Revivacor United Therapeutics wants to hold it back. Quite to the contrary. I hope that we will um, we will be able to uh, satisfactorily apply for another patient with within the year. Within the year. Perfect. Well, um, in our last part of our interview, um, we wanted to really get your thoughts on kind of the state of the, uh, the, the field of cardiothoracic surgery, specifically in where cardiothoracic surgery has really benefited before. Because I think that, you know, you and I could probably agree amongst the different disciplines, we are probably the field where technology and research advances really drives the next, the, the, the growth edge of, of the field. Um, how do you think we are? I mean, do you think we're in a healthy space right now? Or are there concerns you have about some limitations we have in terms of how translational science and uh, innovation really can be introduced in a safe and effective manner to help populations at large? Yeah, I mean, hmm. well, I don't think we teach innovation. I think we talk about it. Okay. Um, it's not part of the average residency. It's always been part of my uh, I-6 uh, you know, we have an I-6 and we love it because they take two years off and they get a master's in, in trials during that that two years off period. And, and they will work in one of our NIH supported laboratories. And most of those laboratories are directly translational, basically working on something that will make an operation easier or will be a, a new operation, you know, because I think that's where cardiac surgeons really flourish, right? Um, yes. If, if, if you ask somebody to help you figure out how to do a mitral valve repair better, well, there's a lot of engineering in that and there's a lot of three-dimensional thought and, and it's all translational to, to not only to that project, but the entire life of a trainee. So, you know, I, I, I think that we're desperate to keep pace with vascular surgery, you, you know, 
I don't know about your shop, but you know, our cardiac surgeons now are doing total arches, uh, you know, completely with, with, you know, maybe a 10 minute cerebral wow. rest and lots of, lots of, you know, branches uh, coming off the graphs. And, you know, I think the entire field of, of vascular surgery will just keep walking up the aorta type one dissections will, will certainly be treated well. And I think, you know, uh, all the aneurysms are going to go away. Um, and, you know, wouldn't Stanley Crawford been surprised, right? Yeah. And, and so we all measured ourselves by being able to do a thoracoabdominal aneurysectomy, right? And so at least in the cardiac world, I, you could speak better to thoracic. I just think it's getting smaller. I think we're learning to do things better. And I think if a cardiac surgeon, that, that my prescription for the healthy next gen would be yeah. somebody who's working as, as hard on innovating as, as he or she is in, in the hamster wheel kind of stuff of doing the routine surgeries that just need to be done. Um, I don't mean to sound um, that I'm not appreciative of those super surgeons. They're far better than I am. But you know, we're teaching, we're teaching trainees to do a David Five, right? No problem. I mean, they get it. They're really good. And when they finish, they're doing operations that took me 15 years to learn how to do, right? Um, yeah. So we're getting better at teaching also, and, and our expectations keep ratcheting up. You know, if you're running a transplant service and you don't have better than a 94% one-year survival rate, you're looking in the rearview mirror because there may be a Mack truck coming down, you know, with the name Unos on it. So, so you know, it's just everything is ramped up. Expectations are quite remarkable. It's a great field. What about the balance in terms of, I mean, you, you and your team have been exceptionally successful at maintaining NIH funded labs for decades. Um, and we know that the competition for extramural funding has been getting, it, it's more stiff now. Um, talk about that. I mean, it, I mean, obviously surgeons have to be in the mindset that they want to do that and appreciate the importance of it, but are there other things that they need to keep in mind to make sure that they keep bringing in the research dollars to make sure that they keep doing the science uh, to move the field forward partnership partnership i think just like just like we partner in the operating room you have to look at your scientific career in a similar way you you need to form partnerships in my world it's always been with bioengineers uh, and of course the bioengineers that i partnered with were more you know how to put a bolt on the screw right yeah. now bioengineers are really talking about engineering tissue science Right, whether it's, you know, for your field, whether we're we're, and I think we're going to be doing this. We're we're going to, you know, recellularize lungs, and you know, how's that going to work, right? Well, how are we going to be sure that the tight junctions are are there and they're not leaking and all that stuff? And a lot of it's going to be engineered. You know, it's going to be a different kind of engineering. But those young engineers, and I've talked to a lot of them because the genetic engineering of the of the pig heart recently. You know, like I'm a big. I'm a big, I'm a big name now for you know the engineering school for some reason sure. because I use the term engineering in the pig and so they think I'm an engineer but you know the <laughs> science there is all molecular and uh, well beyond me except I can regurgitate it you know but I understand its impact going forward you know just like they've they've they, they make these cart cells for for cancer it's a similar you know it's it's cut and sew but it's cut and sewing of the of the genetic message right correct so. So I just think that, you know, it's just 
brought so much to me, you, you know, my life. I've been lucky. I mean, I've been, I guess, NIH funded as a PI since 88. Wow. Uh, and, and none of it could have happened without partnership, you know, with a series of bioengineers and, um, and their lives are much better because they get, they can make rounds with me and they have purpose and, and they work really hard with passion and they have, they have huge empathy. You're not the only, because you have an MD doesn't mean you're the only person on this planet with empathy for a patient, right? And so all you got to do is tease some of these people uh, about the importance of what they're doing. Uh, and my goodness, you know, we take that for granted, Tom. You know, the great pleasure in life is to is to sit on. Well, you're not allowed to sit on the edge of the bed anymore, even though I do sometimes. Um, <laughs> just to take that moment and experience, you know, what that patient thinks you've done for them. I mean, all this hard work, all of it—that's what it's about. And I hope that I hope that the STS will will remember that inspiration. And it's really easy to get down on things, right? Payment yeah. and all that stuff. And, and, you know, we're under duress, but there aren't many animals like us in this zoo, Tom. And, and you know, they got to have they got to have a full zoo if, 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 if you want to have health. So I think we're going to be around. And I think the ones that, that climb on to this cardiothoracic training will be the best and the brightest. That's it. Amen, Dr. Griffith. Well, um, any final words of uh, wisdom for our listeners? I mean, I know that uh, I mean, you've had an incredible life journey and. Um, I would say you're only getting started, uh, probably, because you've probably got lots of ideas coming yeah. up. Yeah, you didn't ask me about the company that we started with, uh, Go Home ECMO, which is... Yes, uh, Go Home ECMO. Please go ahead. Breathe, go. Breathe is going to get get restarted. It had a little bit of a, of a console issue, so they pulled it off the market for about a year. It's being made by Abiumed now. And so I'm very hopeful that breathlessness, you know, is going to be a thing of the past for people with end-stage lung disease, particularly those that are kind of too old to have a transplant or something. They at least... They at least can spend some quality time without being short of breath. Um, that was one thing. The other thing was um, this whole Xeno thing, it's going to happen. I, I'm not sure, you know, whether it's going to be complete in my lifetime. Probably not. But I think just like the early transplant work, there'll be, there'll be some ups and downs figuring it out. But, you know, there's nothing to prevent it, you, you know. And so to have point of service organ availability, a lung or a, or a heart, you know, all this heart failure stuff's going to go away because, you know, you'll be able to make an appointment and, and you'll say, I'm going to have a heart transplant next Thursday. You know, I'm going to, I need to be off work for two weeks. I don't know. I mean, That's I don't incredible. And then I'll I be back at work. I mean, why am I sitting here doing this if not that, right? This so, is amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Well, Dr. Griffith, I, I'm sure you and I could probably keep talking all day, but uh, on behalf of our listeners for Same Surgeon, Different Light, Thank you for taking the time today to connect with us and uh, God bless you and your teams. You're doing amazing, amazing work. You've inspired generations of people. Thank well, you on behalf of the specialist, sir. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. And it's a capital T on the team. So many people, I didn't mention Dr. Mohadeen, who's just so critical. His lifetime's been spent in xenotransplantation. But but I and he, on his behalf, we're quite honored to be asked uh, to, to give a perspective. And uh, you've been very kind to include me, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, sir. You're welcome. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons 
available online at sts.org.